0: You know, because he had this amazing belief that if you looked hard enough, you'll find some good. Uh, you know, it was astounding. And so this ability, this is the other point that I want to make, this ability to look at the situation and figure out how best to behave mm. in that situation. And he learned this on Robin Island. See, when he was on, in, in prison. And prison was both a physical thing but also a metaphorical thing because imprisoning you on Robben Island, they were not only trying to physically isolate you but also mentally imprison your mind, right? And Mr. Mandela knew this. So he would always say to these fellow prisoners, never, ever give the upper hand to your jailers. Never.
1: Kia Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. talking to John Samuel. Rather than introduce John, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself, tell us where he is today, and a little bit about his life and career. Over to you, John.
0: Thanks, Jules. I'm in Johannesburg at the moment, Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'm happily in retirement, having spent almost over 50 odd years in public service of one kind or the other, and also across a number of different countries. But mainly, my time, most of my time, was spent in Africa, West Africa, and Central and South Africa. And during that time, I started off as a regular, ordinary garden teacher. And I taught at secondary schools in. Uh, Zambia, in Ghana, in Zimbabwe, in Tanzania, and uh, South Africa. And so my involvement in education uh, started, I started really at the foundations, in fact. And the experiences that I gained as, as a teacher were, certainly proved to be invaluable later on when I had to do more uh, complex work in education, for example, formulating policy, uh, giving direction to the new government, and so on. Um, But in an ironic fashion, in fact, even though my starting point was education, I had no intention whatsoever of going into education. My entire family are educators. Um, Both my parents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, all were in education in one form or the other. So growing up, I was absolutely clear that there was no way you couldn't drag me into a classroom. And so it really turned out to be quite ironic that I then turned... Spent most of my life, in fact, uh, working in education in one form or the other. But I would say that while education was probably one of my major sort of obsessions, because I, I had certain beliefs about education, my actual career, professional career, uh, spanned a range of different things, but they all involved either setting up new organizations and institutions or uh, managing them at at a senior executive level and so i would say that while my roots are in education my experience gained over the years uh, really relates to uh, both new organizations and established organizations And so in typical kind of organizational management vocabulary, I would say organizational development was probably my major occupation in, you know, starting about 30 years ago. So I have a considerable amount of experience in running organizations and starting them up. I think that Each one presented a different kind of challenge, but I'm not gonna go into that yet. What I'm going to give you an idea is the progression. Uh, And so my first experience of being asked to manage an organization was the one that your parents joined in South Africa in the 80s after much persuasion because in those days, It was not uh, fashionable for people to come to South Africa because of the apartheid policy. But I managed to convince your mother that uh, it would be far more useful for her to be in the middle of the struggle in South Africa than pontificating about it outside in the comfort of London. And so uh, she eventually fought the argument. and, And the organization was called SACET, South African Committee for Higher Education. And it had quite a long pedigree, in fact, because it started as a very small and very modest organization by the student organization in those days called the National Union of South African Students. So it was a student initiative. Uh, as a way of demonstrating their opposition to apartheid university education, which was being introduced at that time. And so it's, from very modest beginnings, it, it became, it grew into the largest non-governmental educational organization fighting apartheid in the country. When I, at, at the height of, of SACED, in the mid-80s, when your parents were there, It grew into a truly national organization in 11 different areas of South Africa and employing over 200 professional staff. So that was something that uh, I would say probably was one of the most testing times in my career for two reasons. One, I never ran an organization before. I was a teacher. I ran schools and an organization, I think, while schools are organizations, they're fairly well-established. There's a routine to them. If you get that right, your schools, you know, you get your schools right. But organizations are more complex and particularly an organization like SACED, which was working contrary to the government of the day. So there were loaded issues around running SACED and I hadn't a clue. I hadn't been to business school, I hadn't done any courses in business management. I hadn't even read a book, I think, on organizational development. So whatever I learned, I learned because I worked with outstandingly good people. And secondly, I was brave, I think, courageous enough to try things. And sometimes uh, some of these turned out to be total disasters. Other times they were brilliant, brilliant you know, in the light of what an organization could do. So that was my first in-depth and complex kind of challenge in terms of organizational development. And then from that, I went on, I was asked by the African National Congress, the major political organization of the day, to set up an educational policy unit so that we can begin preparing for the time we came into government. That was in 1990. Now, this was a smaller task in that I had a very small staff, and that is why I decided to set up a highly specialized unit to do policy work, which was at arm's length from the anc so it so it retained some credibility but also because it was an attempt by us to create a national policy it had to be seen at least to be non-partial and so the actual office was small but the task was huge in the end in the process of making policy we had close on to 300 people working on it. So again, another complex management task because none of these people worked full-time. They all were part-time people, many of them voluntary. And so keeping all of this together challenged us in some amazing ways, in fact. And so a natural progression from that, because in 94, the African National Congress came into government as the government of the day led by Nelson Mandela. And I was then appointed chief policy and planning director, which meant that I had the responsibility for seeing all new policy initiatives and the budget through the first three or four years of of the new government. And again, the task of managing this was in itself quite difficult because none of us had been in government before we had no experience this was absolutely new so we you know we had to begin thinking creatively about how to do this how to run government and that was fascinating because one of the countries we used as as a sort of study model was australia because at that time the Australian government was going through major internal reform. I think they'd come through a period where they recognised that the way they ran government, the administration of government, not the politics of government, but the administration, was old-fashioned and was not responding to the challenges of the country. And so all the departments, including education, were undergoing major reforms. And so we, we were curious about this and spent time in Australia looking at it. But, and so I worked in the new government for four years because I think basically at that time I was totally worn out. And from there, I took um, a position with the Kellogg Foundation based in the United States. And that was really a way to put my head somewhere else and through that to, you know, kind of revive myself by thinking about other issues and other problems. And that I did for three years. And when I came back to South Africa, Mr. Mandela asked me if, because he had just retired and had set up a foundation and he asked me if I would be interested in helping him run the foundation. I had just accepted an academic position at that time. And I said to him, sorry. So he said to me, oh, I see you don't want to help me. And of course, that, that concluded the matter. And, and, and so for the next five, six years, in fact, I worked as the head of the foundation and essentially built it up from scratch. You know, there wasn't much there. There was just a couple of officers and some correspondence. And over the next six years, I worked quite hard at creating a really first-class institution that would do Mr. Mandela proud. And when he retired, I decided to retire as well. And no sooner has I done that, that Oprah Winfrey invited me to join her in the task of starting an all-girls school about an hour outside Johannesburg. And I Worked on that for two years because as much as I enjoyed it, it, it was not something I was too keen to spend too much of time on. I enjoyed particularly the part where, you, you know, you were given a blank slate and an unlimited budget and told, right, build me the best school in the country. So, so that, was, that was quite enjoyable. But I returned, in fact, after that to almost my starting point, which was uh, going back to university. And the task I had there was to set up the first institution that would study race and social injustice. And so I spent two years setting up this institute right in the heartland of Africana racism. It was a fascinating exercise, in fact. And then the vice chancellor of the university asked me to stay on for another year as an advisor to him on strategy. So that really is a long way of telling you what my sort of major career steps were. I'm sure you can see running through it particular threats, Uh, but mainly, in fact, I would say, learning how to manage complex, rapidly changing situations and contexts and therefore shaping organizations and people so that they had the capacity. I mean, the one thing I quickly learned that when you occupy the senior executive position it didn't mean that you had to do everything yourself because I tried that and discovered that at the end of the first week, I was ready to collapse. And slowly but surely, I learned some invaluable lessons, not the least of which in fact, was that one of your key roles as chief executive or in any other executive capacity was to one, find good people, to create a challenging environment for them because you selected them because they were good. And so you create a challenging environment, not too comfortable, but nevertheless, they must know that you have their back 24-7. They must know if they venture down a road that dead ends, you are there you are behind them, you will rescue them, and you will support them. And thirdly, never, ever forget to say thank you. And once I'd worked that out, and it wasn't easy, because as I said, I had no experience, and so it was almost having to learn on the job. But once I figured those sort of elements out, in the role of executive in an organization, it was all smooth going after that in many ways. In fact, it was just that the context changed and therefore one had to. And so I think from from an external point of view, the key lesson I learned was study your context. Study it so that you understand it as much as you can, so you know it's not that you can avoid having something come at you suddenly it and that's the challenge i think that's in the nature of the job but you reduce the chances of that suddenness throwing you too far off course and that's a very very important skill that executives you know needed in fact and i think more than any other, I would say today, because of the complex nature of society and the way in which we're evolving, it's not getting easier. I, I think we're going from a whole range of social challenges to economic justice, to, to the environment, to climate change, to nationalism, to racism. These are hugely demanding and complex challenges and no organisation will ever be exempt from any of these so the sooner one begins to figure out how do i manage this what do i do how do what's my strategy this is where chief executives now have to spend 90% of their time i would argue
1: i have uh, lots and lots of and questions there. yeah That was really interesting, John. I've got some questions that I'm going to fire at you now in no particular order, just the the order that I contain them in my brain. So first question, then I just want to talk about that resilience and that preparation point that you've just made, because I 100% agree that the ability to preemptively plan for the unknown and the shock is one of the biggest skills that leaders need to develop. And I think what's happening is that people are so busy with the day-to-day or the near term that they're not taking enough time away from that day-to-day to think about what is my context, what has changed, what might come and hit hit us, hit me, hit the organisation And how can I shore up my defences or make sure that my people are as prepared as they can be for the unknown? I'm interested in what you might have learned from being involved in these really complex organisations that are forging new ground that might be helpful for people to think about in terms of that preparation for the unknown and the unknowable.
0: Well, I think, again this some of these lessons emerged out of the context in which we worked and so they are experiential based they're not theoretical they you know i didn't go to textbooks to pick these up they were based and then shaped from organization to organization the one thing i think that chief executives and executives have to learn is that As I said earlier on, their job is not to run the work. You employ middle level management for that task. And that's where I spent most of my time, in fact, so that I knew the organization was operational and I could do other things. So for example, once a week, I had meetings with all my heads of department, one hour per week. I don't care if, you know, the prime minister was coming to see us. It became known in the organization that when you had that meeting with John Samuel, you better make sure you were there. So it was a non-negotiable. And through that one hour meeting, I developed a kind of gauge on what was working, what wasn't working, how to help people overcome that hurdle and so on but I never got involved in the actual running of the organization. So that that then created space and time for me to talk to people in the political arena, to talk to people running foundations, strategic people, and so on, so that I began building up a better understanding of the context. And, And I think this is probably one of the greatest weaknesses of many people who run organizations now and in the past. And that is a failure to come to terms with the fact that one, the world is changing and it's changing rapidly, and two, it's generating complex contexts. And in a way, I've argued in the past, in fact, that some people, mediocre talent, seek refuge in work because they are incapable of managing complexity. And and so I think if executives want to be good at what they do, then they have to start with recognizing that they need to develop a more sophisticated understanding of context and the challenges embedded within those contexts that are likely, Not, not everything will come at you, but I can guarantee you, that something is coming at you. And therefore, the better you understand it, the better you are likely to come up with organizational strategies to help you cope with these things. And no organization is an island unto itself. It lives in a context. It has people. And that combination of context and people is one of the most challenging combinations you can find. And 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 so you know, I think, again based on experience, listening to people is a very important skill. Because as Mr. Mandela told me once, and I asked him, you know, because he kept saying it's very important for you to listen to people. And so one day I asked him why, and he said, "Look, if you listen one hundred percent to people, you may hear things." that you haven't heard before. Secondly, in some of the things that are being said by the other person, there may be some good advice or good information. And thirdly, it is always courteous to pay 100% attention to people. Because, he said, in his experience, people would be listening to him, but at the same time, half of their hearing is being preoccupied with preparing their answer to him long before he's finished. And he says, people are very fond of doing that. They latch onto something you've said instead of listening to you and then spend time trying to understand or formulate a response to that instead of listening to your entire presentation. And so the skill of listening Is a very important and executives need to pay attention to both the internal noise and the external noise. Internal, because that will help them understand what's actually going on, right? And that they don't get caught with their pants down because something happens inside and they're not aware of it. But but external is very powerful in that it's where you're going to pick up information on the major waves that are building up and are likely to turn into a tsunami one day. And so those two aspects, the internal noise and the external noise, being able to listen to both is vitally important. So, you know, that would be some of the advice I would give to people running organizations. And it's it's not easy. Let me make myself absolutely clear. Because it may sound easy in that it's taken me 30 to 35 years to get to the place where I can articulate it in this fashion. But it does require courage. I can remember, in fact, times when I began to wonder. I'd supported a member of staff and things weren't working out. And I was beginning to question whether my strategy was right. But in the end, in fact, that person came through. It wasn't without its challenges. But if I had given up, I think it would have thrown a whole lot of doubt on my approach.
1: I'm interested in your use of the term courage um, because it's one that I have used often when talking to leaders about the role of leadership and the role of a leader in an organization. And and I use it in two ways, it have two meanings. The first is that it actually takes a whole lot of courage and bravery to be a leader, to put yourself forward, to be the one where the buck stops or to mm. have to have that vision and to keep something going forward when there's a whole lot of complexity or a whole lot of people sort of saying, you know, are you sure you're right? You know, that doubt can creep in. And the second is that in the end, within organisations, the way they're structured, quite often the leaders are the ones who have to make the final decisions. You know, you can listen, you can take advice, but the way organisations are structured is that in the end, there's somebody who makes the decision, and as a leader, if you fail to make a decision because it's, uh, it's too ambiguous or it's too big a decision, you don't know what to do. Actually, you end up paralyzing the whole organization. So in the end, as a leader, you have to have the courage to make the decision. And so I'm really fascinated that you use that same term because it's not mm. often part of the discussion when we're talking about leadership
0: yes i think you're right in fact that i often say having read just about every book on management and organizational development there is i often say that two things in fact one is what i call airport literature five minutes on how to run an organization a lot of bullshit secondly there are organizational tricks and there are organizational management. And I think sometimes there's too much of an emphasis on organizational tricks. After all, you can train a monkey to do tricks. But train somebody to run an organization is a lot more demanding than just simply being able to do one of the SWOT analysis and so on and so on, right? I'm not saying that it may be a useful tool, but honestly, in my experience, SWOT analysis was an absolute waste of time, whereas strategic thinking, on the other hand, was extremely helpful. So distinguishing between the superficial and what's on top and what's underneath. And part of the underneath armory of weapons includes, in fact, courage. And courage is to be seen in two different contexts and shapes. The one is moral courage. Leaders must possess, to make that decision, no matter how unpopular, they must have moral courage. And again, if I can draw on Mr. Mandela's experience, when he was released off Robben Island, during this time, KwaZulu-Natal was embroiled in terrible violence. People were being murdered at the rate of 10 a day and so on. There was an internecine battle going on in KwaZulu-Natal between the ANC and the opposition party called Inkata. So he knew this was one of his major challenges. And he went down to Durban. In fact, he started off in Marisburg and went down to Durban, where there was a huge mass rally, thousands and thousands of young, mainly young people. And he had decided, and he hadn't informed many of his advisors that this is what he was going to do. During the course of his speech, he said, and he was addressing, I think, mainly the younger generation, I want you to throw down your spears and weapons, and I want this violence to come to an end there was tremendous booing, waving of arms and saying, get away, get away, no, no, no. And he stuck to his guns and he repeated this. He repeated it at least three times until there there was a kind of hush in the audience in the stadium. And while he didn't necessarily win the day, but he'd set in motion a thought process that would percolate slowly, not overnight, slowly into the consciousness of many of the youngsters. And I, so that was the moral courage, right? It was based on what he thought was right. And even though the consequences were a rejection initially, he nevertheless went ahead. And he would emphasize this point, I had the privilege of, spending hours and hours with him in private conversation and this point about moral courage in leadership when you look at leadership particularly political leadership today in the world you'd be hard pressed to give me an example of a leader with that moral courage i dare you to in fact to cite me an example of a leader probably the closest that came to it was your prime minister in New Zealand.
1: That's who I was thinking of.
0: (laughs) But you can go through, in fact, the rest, starting from America and going to Zanzibar, and you'll find, and it's happening at a time when that quality of moral courage and leadership is needed the most at a national level, at a local level, at an organizational level. And the reason for this is that because we face complex challenges that are embedded deeply in the ills of society, no amount of organizational tricks are going to get you out of these issues. You can do SWOT analysis till the cows come home, And it's not going to change racism, social injustice, the environment, climate, et cetera. And so I really want to emphasize this point because I think I tried to run my life as an executive on that basis. And I suspect that in the end, much of the respect that I earned as a leader came out of that rather than my ability to perform some fancy footwork on the dance floor, as they say. It's that aspect that the business schools don't teach you. And the textbooks hardly mention it. Or if they do, it's mentioned in passing.
1: Do you think that those two things that you cited, the ability to truly listen and the Moral courage to say and do what's right in the face of adversity are the sort of the things that really made Nelson Mandela stand out? Or are there other aspects that he brought into the role of a leader that would yeah. be useful for people to sort of reflect on?
0: I think so. I, but I would put those two at the heart. Moral courage, I would say, is number one because it's so difficult. Because it's so complex and challenging, it's easier to bow out than to make that decision based on on your beliefs about, you know, what is good and what is not, what is bad. So at all levels, I think, whether it's organizational, whether it's at personal relationships, at all levels, it certainly was at the center of his life. And that set him apart from leaders in other parts of the world, but also in the leadership in South Africa, historically. The listening part, in fact, it took me quite a while to understand why he was placing so much of emphasis. And I would agree, in fact, it's an enormous skill that you have, because when you are in dialogue with somebody, particularly if you're trying to persuade the other person, you are in so much of a hurry to get your point across that you don't pay attention to what the other person is saying. And many discussions, many negotiations have broken down around that point. The failure for parties to listen to each other properly. It's not that they weren't talking properly. It wasn't that they were, you know, making sense. It was this fundamental flaw of basically saying, oh, I think I've heard what you said, but what's more important is my point of view, right, and pushing that. Some of the other qualities I think that helped him a great deal was being able to figure out a situation. Oh, sorry, just before I step off listening, I've seen Mr. Mandela sit in on meetings and not say a word for seven hours. Not a word, right? And then he would, <clears throat> you know, in his kind of very studied form, would put his hand up and, and say he wanted now to make a contribution. And it was quite amazing. In those seven hours, he was listening to everything. Nothing escaped him. Not a a note, not a pencil, right? And then he would, first of all, he'd begin by summing up the different positions and then pulling out of that the good and then saying, this is what I think. You know, and so he never... He never started off by saying, well, i listened listen to you guys, half of you are talking rubbish, and the other half, well, I'll take some of that, and so on. You know? um, he never negated, even though he knew some of it was rubbish. But he said, because he had this amazing belief that if you looked hard enough, you'll find some good. I, I, you know, it was astounding. And so this ability... This is the other point that I want to make: this ability to look at a situation and figure out how best to behave mm. in that situation. And he learned this on Robin Island. Mm. See, when he was in prison, and prison was both a physical thing, but also a metaphorical thing, because imprisoning you on Robin Island, they were not only trying to physically isolate you, but also mentally imprison your mind. Right, And Mr. Mandela knew this. So he would always say to his fellow prisoners, never, ever give the upper hand to your jailers. Never, right? So, for example, when people went to see him, his family, he would say to his family, look, visiting hours from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, but I don't want you to wait till four o'clock. At quarter to four, I want you to get up and leave, take your goodbyes and then leave. And they would say, but no, we, you know, 15 minutes, you... He says, no, four o'clock is the time the warders have put as a time you can leave. But if you leave at a quarter to four, you are setting the parameters not the waters. And so this is central, in fact, to his ability to have managed all that time on Robin Island in a way that enabled him, first of all, to keep his dignity, and secondly, to do so in a principled manner. That was, you know, an astounding ability, which he then applied after coming off Robin Island to many political context and situations and during the negotiation as well.
1: It's an incredible story. I went to Robben Island and at the time you could be escorted round by an ex-prisoner who would take Ah. you to to their cell and would talk about, you know, what life was like and, and how they kept their their well-being during those many years it's an incredibly stark place there's you Mm. know it's it's very rocky the sunlight bounces off the pale stones there's hardly any trees there's not a lot of protection so it's not even the 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 prison itself but the whole environment is very harsh nowhere to hide which is the whole point yes that ability to take where you find yourself and create a little bit of control, a little bit of your own world, is a, must have been an amazing saviour, not just for him, yeah. but for, for the people that he was with.
0: Yes. Oh, and I should mention in the list of characteristics in terms of his leadership, the last point I want to make is his deep sense of humility. Now, don't get me wrong, Mr. Mandela had an acute sense of who he was. Mm. He knew he was a historical character, a leader of great eminence. He knew that, but he never flouted it. Mm. And so his humility was demonstrated in so many different ways. Probably the most striking was this ability, capacity to say thank you to people, no matter who they were. I remember being on a plane from New York This was before he became president. And he walked the entire length of that plane, shaking hands with every single passenger. And the first time I met him, we were flying down to Cape Town to meet with then president, white president. And when we got off at the plane, he got the stewardess to line up the staff of the plane, the pilot, co-pilot, and the steward attendants. And he shook hands with them and thanked them and so on. And he would do this... All the time, all the time. And part of that was his ability, for example, to spot children in crowds. I'll never forget, we were in London, and he was just getting of his car, and I don't know how he spotted this young boy. So when he got of his car, he said to the security guard, bring that boy there. You see that boy in the crowd there? Bring him. I want to say hello to him. So this humility was not false in the sense that, you know, he was he would do it. It emerged out of his nature is respect and love for people.
1: Those things go hand in hand, don't they? The ability to notice everything, pay attention to everything and really concentrate. That story about sitting for hours and hours without talking, that is an exercise in discipline and concentration. Um, Yes. If you're noticing everything around you, then you're also noticing the fact that the plane can't fly without every part of the system working or every Mm. person Mm. and every role doing their job, which is very much Mm. like an organisation. Yes. You you have the people who make sure the offices are clean, you have the reception, the reception desk, you have people who do all of the accounting all the way through the organisation, and it's very easy to to pay attention to the people who speak the loudest or who seem to be the most important. But actually, if you take away those people who make the organisation function, actually the whole thing falls down. Mm -hmm. So there's something to me in his understanding that if you notice everybody and you acknowledge them by thanking them and listening to them, then what you're really doing is being an absolute system thinker. Because you see yes. the system and the people that perform all the roles in the system very, very clearly, which is an amazing skill. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. I know it's difficult and uh, it's been a bit of a hard few months. So mm. you've enjoyed, enjoyed it. And uh, let's book again when we've got yeah. some more electricity time.
0: Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you,
1: John. Take care.
0: Okay, bye.
1: Bye. At this point, my conversation with John had to be cut short due to load shedding in South Africa. Basically, regular managed power cuts to lessen the drain on the country's power supplies. We aim to pick it up again in a few months time. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this first opportunity to hear John's fascinating stories and leadership insights. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, as always, to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.